Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed cause our souls to long for you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to ponder what we read here from Paul about his life. And we pray that you would use it to give us wisdom as we think about our lives. And Lord, we ask that You would cause these things that, that sustained Paul, these things for which he gave himself. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel how significant and precious the gospel is and how significant and precious it is that, precious it is that you promised to be with us. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us to the very end. In Christ's name, amen. I'd invite you to open this morning to Romans chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 22 through 33, the last section of Romans 15. And what we have here are Paul's travel plans and prayer requests here in Romans 15, verses 22 through 33. Travel plans and prayer requests. At this point, the letter to the Romans starts sounding like a missionary prayer letter, which in a way is what it is. I mean, at least this part of it is. He's telling the Romans where he intends to go, and then he's asking them to join him, to strive together with him in prayer. And uh, you, might, you might think, well, you know, he's been telling us how to live as Christians. He's been exhorting us and instructing us in the gospel and in how we ought to treat one another and how we ought to respond to the Lord what can we learn from his travel plans? What is there here for us in his travel plans? Well, these verses give us an opportunity to reflect together on Paul's life and particularly on his last years. And I think there's a lot here for us to, to contemplate as we think about our own lives and the think, as we think about the way that we, we plan our lives and then the way that that God intervenes in our lives. So as we approach uh, this first section of Romans 15, verses 22 through 29, let, let me just review for you a little bit of what we can know about the Apostle Paul uh, as we approach verse 22. So we know from one of his letters where he refers to himself as an old man, uh, we, can, we can date that letter and we can uh, we can understand that that particular word is used to refer to a man uh, between a, in a certain age range. And, and from that information, we know that Paul was probably born sometime before A.D. 10. So he was born sometime in, in, in the first decade of this era, Anno Domini. And that means that when Jesus was active in Jerusalem, Paul would have been a young man of between 20 and 30 years old. He was just probably a little bit younger than the Lord Jesus. And as a Pharisee, being trained by one of the most significant Pharisees of his day, Paul could have been among the, the scribes and Pharisees who actually interacted with uh, the living Lord Jesus, the incarnate Lord Jesus. And then we know that 
sometime shortly, probably shortly after Jesus was crucified and raised and ascended, I think probably within the first year and a half, uh, Paul was on his way to, to Damascus. This would have been between the, age, between the years A.D. 30 and 33 probably. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him. And at that point, this Turkish Jew who had been uh, training in Jerusalem and who was, according to his own description of himself in Galatians, Galatians 1, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. So he was a young up-and-comer. He was, he was climbing the ladder, and he was gaining power. At that point, his whole life was turned upside down. And, and it was revealed to him that everything that he thought he was doing for Yahweh, the God of Israel, was actually in opposition to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the Lord Jesus uh, took control of his life at that point, revealed himself to the Apostle Paul, and Paul immediately began to follow the Lord Jesus. He tells us in, in Galatians that he went away for three years, and, and I suspect that probably what he did was he withdrew with the Scriptures, and he began to think and pray and meditate and reevaluate everything that he thought about the Old Testament. And then he tells us that, that at some point through there, he went up to Jerusalem and he got acquainted with Peter and, and James. And then another 14 years go by and Barnabas comes to get him and he begins to actively pursue ministry. That would have been probably in the years 40 to 45 and, uh, or somewhere through there. And then Paul begins to preach the gospel and for about 10 or 15 years, maybe if, if you count the whole time from his con conversion, 20 to 27 years, he's actively proclaiming the gospel, and everywhere he's going, he's planting churches, and he's, he's making converts, he's baptizing people into the church, and he's installing elders in these churches, and he's active in the work of the Great Commission. And then probably around A.D. 57, he, he comes to Corinth, and I'd, I'd actually invite you to, to look back at the book of Acts, and you might keep a, a finger here in Romans 15, and we'll, we'll make several references to Acts as we go through here this morning. I'd like for you to look with me at Acts chapter 20, and if you just sort of scan your eyes over Acts 19, you can see that there's just been a riot in Ephesus. So Paul shows up in Ephesus, and, and uproar breaks out. You know, people start shouting, and they, they, they start pitching a big massive fit about the way that he's going to take away their, their, uh, the esteem of their idol and he's going to destroy their economy. And after the uproar ceased, Acts 20 verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And, and here he's probably in Corinth. And then in verse 3, there he spent three months and when, it was, when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia and, and so forth. But those three months that he spends in Greece, that's probably when he writes the book of Romans, while he's in Corinth. And he's planning at that point to go back to Jerusalem. And, and we'll, we'll now look together at Romans 15, verse 22, where having just quoted this text from Isaiah 52 about how those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And this is Paul explaining 
why he wants to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named to fulfill that prophecy so that people will know about Jesus. Then he says in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So because Paul has been about the business of preaching the gospel where Christ has not been named, he has so often been hindered from coming to the Romans. And you may have noticed when Denny read Romans chapter 1, how Paul had said to them there that he has, he's longed to come to them, uh, but he's been, he's been hindered and he, he's been um, kept from being able to get to them. And I think the kinds of hindrances that have stood in the way of him getting to Rome are the kinds of things that we read about back in Acts chapter 16. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you'd like to look at Acts 16 in verse 6 and following... We read here, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Paul is making his way on this missionary journey, and somehow the Holy Spirit makes clear, makes clear to him, you are not permitted to go into Asia. And so he doesn't go into Asia. And then he says in verse 7, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And, and so, again, the Holy Spirit is directing his steps. It's making it so he goes to one place and not the other. And, and Paul, uh, as he has said to the Romans, there are these signs and wonders being done in his ministry. And I think he's, he's clearly someone who, who is a prophet. So the, the Spirit is revealing to him where he should and should not go. And then he goes on, verse 8, uh, Luke continues in Acts 16, verse 8. So passing by Mysia... They went down to Troas, and then verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So these are the kinds of things, I think, that Paul is talking about in Romans 15, 22, when he says that he's often been hindered from coming to, to the Romans. And why would he want to go to Rome? Well, for the same reason that someone might want to come to Louisville, because there are lots of people going in and out of Rome. It, it's a crossroads, and it's the kind of place where if you influence what people are thinking in Rome, that influence is going to be taken to all parts of the empire, because people are going to go out from Rome all over the place. And, and we can see from the history of the church how significant um, Christianity in Rome was in that, in that time period. So Paul has been trying to get to Rome. He's been wanting to get to Rome, and the Lord keeps redirecting him. And then he, he says in verse 23, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and I think what he, what he means there is I've fulfilled the gospel ministry. I've preached the gospel. We've got churches established. And these churches are now able to send out others to go preach the gospel. So, so we've got healthy places where they understand the gospel, they understand the scriptures, that people are growing in Christ. These people can now carry forth the ministry, so there's not new foundation-laying work for me to do. Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. 
I think there's a little bit of, of um, making sure that the Romans don't think too much of themselves here. There's a little bit of, of Paul saying, remember the mission. The mission is to keep proclaiming the gospel where Christ has not been named. So yes, I want to come to you in Rome. And yes, I, I am concerned about you and I, and I want to proclaim the gospel to you and I want to see you face to face. I love you, I care about you, but we're not gonna get distracted from the mission. I, I'm, I'm trying to get to Spain. I'm trying to get to the ends of the earth. And he says there in verse 24, to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So these are Paul's immediate plans. He's trying to get to Spain, and he wants to come through Rome on the way. And then he informs them of his, his present work. So verse 25, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So there, there's actually a lot in both the book of Acts and in Paul's letters about these collections that Paul would engage in, these, these monetary uh, collections of funds for famine re relief in, uh, in, in the area of Jerusalem, in Judea. In, in that region, there, there had been a famine, and the saints were suffering, and so Paul went through the churches to, to raise funds to help them to get through this period. And as I was as I was reading and, and, and studying for this passage, there's actually a lot of scholarly discussion asking the question, why does this come up so much? So I just want to review briefly here uh, where we see Paul's concern for the poor in, in both the book of Acts and in his letters. So in Acts 11 is kind of where this starts. Um, in Acts 11, we read in verses, verse 27 and following. Now in those days... In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief, they're talking about funds, to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul." And then a little bit later in Acts, in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, this is right before the riot, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So here we can see that Paul is on his way to Rome, but first he's going to Jerusalem to deliver the funds. And then if you'd like to turn to Galatians chapter 2, on this occasion, Paul is meeting with the pillars of the church, and he tells us uh, about how Peter and James and, and John, who seem to be pillars in Galatians 2.9, perceived the grace that was given to him. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision. Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing that I was eager to do. So we can see that, that there, there are poor people, poor believers in, in Judea, and the other apostles are asking Paul to keep them in mind and to um, help them to relieve their need. And then, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, a passage that we'll be in uh, shortly, probably, and then also in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is about the business of raising up these funds that are going to be taken to the Jewish Christians in, 
in Jerusalem. Why, why was this so significant to him? <clears throat> well, the most convincing answer to that question, I think, that, that I came across in my study, has to do with the reconciliation that it attests to between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, we're, we're dealing with Paul at the end of his life. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to get to Jerusalem, and, and the Jews in Jerusalem, are going, the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, are going to go nuts on him. He, they're going to see him in the temple, and they are going to, they're, they're going to have a conniption, and they're going to want to rip him to shreds. They're, they're, they're trying bodily to tear him to pieces because they're devoted to Yahweh, and he's proclaiming Jesus, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they think that he's misleading the people, and so they want to, they want to kill him. And Paul is proclaiming a message that's bringing Jews and Gentiles together. A message that is going to make Gentiles, as he describes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Gentiles who are not wealthy, Gentiles who are in, a, in, in afflicted circumstances themselves, and they are going to beg him for the favor, the grace of contributing to the needs of the, of the believers in Jerusalem. So, so this is remarkable racial reconciliation that we're seeing at work in the collection. Because the collection is a situation where probably mainly Gentiles are saying, we care so much about those people for whom Jesus died in Jerusalem, and we are so committed to this gospel that is the only saving message in the world that we're ready to empty our pockets. We're ready to give sacrificially out of our own poverty, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, to relieve their financial need. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, those Jewish Christians, their attitude is not going to be, we're not taking this filthy, unclean Gentile money. Which, I mean, if we, if we had talked about Gentile money prior to the coming of Christ, I suspect that would have been the reaction. This is un, these are unclean funds. We don't know how these people got this money. They probably did all kinds of unclean and immoral things to get this money. We're not about to receive these contributions. But the, we're not going to have any of that kind of reaction to the Gentile monetary contribution when Paul brings this money to Jerusalem. No, there's going to be a harmonious celebration of God's goodness in Christ that overcomes these long-standing religious differences between Jews and Gentiles. These massively different cultural traditions from which they come. The language barriers are going to be overcome. And all of these people are going to be like Christ, laying down their lives, giving sacrificially of what little they have to love one another in the Lord Jesus. So I think Paul sees this financial contribution as a glorious living out of the gospel. People who have been transformed by the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and then they're living out that transformation. And I think this is why this contribution comes up so often for him. It's why he, he, he's so deliberate about laying out a strategy for the Corinthians, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 16, in, in telling them exactly how to put money away and exactly why they should put money away. 
It's why he was, he was so diligent to, to make sure that everything was above board in 2 Corinthians, making sure that, that nobody had any questions about how the funds were, were going to be dealt with, that everything was going to be done with integrity. So it's also why he's not yet going to Rome here in, in Romans chapter 15, where he tells us there in verse 25, at present, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. And then he explains, verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Look at that. They're pleased. Did you see that? They're pleased to make some contribution for the poor in Jerusalem. These are not people who are saying, I'd really rather keep this money, but I feel guilted into this. No, these are people who are happy to give and, and the passage is so remarkable. It is so striking every time you read it. So I, I just want to read to you again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says here about these Macedonians, whom he seems to have just mentioned here in Romans 15, verse 26. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, affliction, poverty, joy. I mean, we don't expect those things to go to, together, do we? In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These are not people who are saying, we have so much money that it doesn't matter that we give generously to Paul. These are people who are in poverty and are joyously giving. For they gave, he continues in verse 3, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So what Paul is describing is, I think, every bit as miraculous as him raising Eutychus from the dead. You know that story? He's preaching all night. Eutychus falls out the window, dies. Paul goes down. The guy gets raised from the dead. I, I think for these people in extreme poverty to, to overflow in, in generosity in the midst of severe affliction, that's as miraculous as that young man being raised from the dead. So Paul tells the Romans here in uh, Romans 15, verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia is Greece, that's Corinth. I mean, that's a, there's a transformation for you, isn't there? The Corinthians, we've heard about how they lived, right? But these people got transformed through all those problems that we've read about in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians all through that letter, all the sexual immorality, all the idolatry, all the factions. Well, the gospel came to those people. And they were pleased with the Macedonians to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. He says it twice. They were pleased to do it. And then he goes on, and indeed, they owe it to them. Now, I think what Paul means here is the promise came through the Jews. And the Messiah came from the Jewish people. And because of God's goodness to Israel, the, the Gentiles 
ought to respond in gratitude to the Jews. I think that's, that's what he means. I don't, I don't, there, there have been other proposals about how to understand this, uh, some form of temple tax and, and these kinds of things. I don't think that's accurate at all. I think Paul is describing the way that God began to make promises to Abraham, and those promises were passed down to Isaac and Jacob, and then all of that was preserved through the Mosaic Covenant. And then Jesus came to fulfill all that. And so because salvation has come from the Jews, the Gentiles, in gratitude for receiving that salvation, now owe it to their Jewish brothers in Christ to help them. Which I think this also... um, supports the idea that in Romans 11, uh, Paul is talking about a future salvation of ethnic Israel uh, who who will believe in Jesus. So this is another indication, I think, that that God is not finished with the Jewish people. Um, He's telling us about how these Gentiles were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, the Jews, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. It seems to me that this is probably also related to Paul's effort to stir up the Jews to jealousy. I mean, imagine, imagine the result of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem with all, these money from the, all this money from these Gentile churches. And suddenly, these, these people, these Jewish believers in Jesus who belong to these churches in Jerusalem they're going to have resources at their disposal and their neighbors are going to start looking at them and saying, where'd you get the money to buy that food? We're all starving here. Where'd this come from? And they're going to say, well, our Gentile brothers in Christ, our, our Gentile brothers and sisters in Messiah, Jesus gave us this. And, and it's going to be an opportunity for these other Jews to be like, hey, wait a minute, that's our Messiah. We want in on this. You're, t- you're talking about a reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, and in a sense, as, as Ryan read earlier in the passage, you're talking about the wealth of the nations being brought to Jerusalem for the benefit of the king's people. Hey, that's supposed to be ours. We're supposed to be benefiting from this. So I think Paul means for this to be evangelistic. Paul, Paul means for this to be living out what Jesus said when he, he described the way that people would know that they were his followers by the way they loved one another. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, verse 28, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So again, I'm trying to get to the ends of the earth. And, you know, if you think about the continent of Europe... Um, and, and what Paul probably knew of it, that's probably the farthest point he can imagine. So it's like, I think it's like he's saying, I'm going to the end of the world, and I'm, and I'm making a stop uh, on my way, and I want you to help me get there. But first, I've got to deliver this collection. And then he tells us in verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So we see here Paul's intention. Paul intends to to make his way to Jerusalem and to have this celebration of God's grace among the Gentiles and God's grace among the Jews as the Jews have their their poverty and their famine relieved by the financial gift provided through the Gentile churches. And then Paul intends to go to Rome. And 
Maybe you remember the events of the rest of the book of Acts. You know, we just, we just said a moment ago, Acts 19.21, how Paul had related that he was going to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So Achaia is Corinth. That's, that's, and then Acts 20, he writes the letter to the Romans. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. And you may remember what happens in Acts 21. I, I alluded to it earlier. There's this, this riot that breaks out when they see Paul in the temple. They seize him. And then Paul gets arrested by the Romans. And Paul is held for the next two years by uh, various Roman officials, essentially in the land of, of Israel. He's, he's transferred at one point from Jerusalem to Caesarea. But for the next two years, he's in jail. So he's thinking, I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to Rome. And the Lord, I think means to fulfill. Okay, Paul, you got that right. That's going to be the, those are going to be the stopping points. But first, the Lord has a little bit of this in mind. Acts 9, from Paul's, when, right after when Paul gets converted, uh, this guy Ananias is told to go to Paul, and the Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So while Paul is in Jerusalem, under Roman arrest, he's going to preach before the council, the Sanhedrin. So he's going to preach to all the most significant people of the city of Jerusalem. And then he's going to preach to Festus and Felix, these Roman officials and their audiences. And, and the Lord is going, to, is going to bring him through these various trials for the next two years. And then eventually, as he, as he realizes he's not going to get justice, eventually he appeals to Caesar. And he winds up getting taken to Rome, not, not by himself, you know, in freedom, going there for his own purposes. He winds up go, being taken to Rome as a Roman prisoner. So he eventually gets to Rome. Look at what he said there in Romans 15, verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And I think it's only, it's only as a Christian it's only understanding God's providence that, that Paul could look at his situation and say, what I wrote there actually turned out to be the case. I mean, he was, he was held as a prisoner, guiltless, totally innocent, having done nothing wrong, not free to move about, not free to pursue his own purposes, which were God's purposes. He was held as a prisoner for two years, unjustly wickedly. I mean, one of those Roman officials is hoping he's going to bribe. He's going to get a bribe from Paul. You know, Paul, probably the word has gotten around. Paul arrived at Jerusalem with a lot of money. And so that Roman official, when he gets wind of this and he's thinking, that guy's got resources. I'm, when I get some of those resources, maybe I'll let him go. In the meantime, I'll placate these Jews and just let him rot here in prison. And then Paul gets taken to Rome you know, he comes through shipwreck. They, they land on that. They, they, the ship goes down, basically. They escape to this island. He gets bit by a viper and then remarkably stays alive and then comes to Rome exactly as he says here, in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Through all the afflictions, through all the riots, through all the beatings and imprisonments, through all the unjust treatment from the government, Paul came to Rome in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So, you know, as we reflect on 
Paul's travel plans, I, I, I think statements like Proverbs 19.21, maybe you have that verse memorized, many are the plans in the heart of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I mean, I think Paul's thinking, Luke and me and the others, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and then we're going to leave Jerusalem, and we're going to make our way to Rome, and then we're going to go to Spain. And he gets to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he's in custody for the next two years. It's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. He does eventually get to Rome, but not, not as a free man. He, I, according to tradition, he was eventually released from that two years in Rome, so 57 to 59 in custody in Jerusalem and Caesarea, and then 60, 61 in custody in Rome. He was two years in his own house, and then according to tradition, he eventually made his way to the end of the earth, to probably Spain, before he was arrested again and then eventually beheaded. These other things that Paul said are also true of his, of his ministry. Things in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he said in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we can see Paul's plans, we can see the way the Lord intervenes, and we can see the way that he persevered and rejoiced in the midst of all that affliction. And then his, his prayer requests here in Romans 15, verses 33 through 33. He says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of of the Spirit. Now, have, have, you, have you wondered, why does he say, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ? I think what he's saying is, you know I'm about the work of the gospel. You know what I'm about. You know I'm about proclaiming Christ where he has not been named. So remember the Lord Jesus, and out of that remembrance, pray for me. And by the love of the Spirit, Again, this life-giving Holy Spirit that makes the Bible come alive, that makes people turn from the love of sin to the love of holiness and from enmity and disobedience to the love and service of God, the, the work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to love God and love one another. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And then he's, he's got two things he asks them to pray for. And he wants them to strive. He wants them to labor in prayer over this. So the first one in verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. This is a prescient prayer request. It's like Paul knows, you know, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. There are going to be a lot of people not very happy to see me. So many people that they might actually start a riot and try to rip me to shreds, which is exactly what happens. And he's asking these people to pray for him, that he'll be delivered from those unbelievers. And then he continues, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Uh, so he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be uh, thwarted by the unbelievers in, in Jerusalem, and he doesn't want the saints in Jerusalem to look at the money from the Gentiles and say, this is dishonoring 
to us. This is demeaning to us, that they would suggest that somehow we need their mutt. He doesn't want them to react in pride. He wants them to see this love gift that has come from their brothers and sisters in Christ, and he wants them to, to embrace it, for it to be acceptable to the saints. So that, verse 32, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So I miscounted. There are three requests there. Number one, that the unbelievers won't, won't hinder him. Number two, that the believers will receive the gift. And then number three, so that he can get to them with joy. That's what he wants them to labor in prayer for. And then finally, he prays for them again in verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. There's a lot here for us, I think. A lot here for us that instructs us First, how to think about our own plans. You know, we're, I, I, I trust you're aware, we're, we're making plans about how we can share the gospel. We're making plans about our next uh, uh, event, Sunday night evangelistic event. We're making plans about upcoming attempts to encourage our missionaries. Some of you in the room are making plans uh, to go to the mission field. Some of you in the room can really identify with the Apostle Paul. You tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to get to the field, and it's like at every point. You got hindered. You got redirected. Something happened and it didn't work out. And I think we learn from Paul that, that this doesn't deter us from the mission of the kingdom. However things work out, we keep our eye on the ball. We're still trying to get the gospel to those who need to hear it. And, and in all the affliction, in all the difficulty, there's opportunity to rejoice and give thanks. I think there's also a, a lot for us to learn from those, the way those churches rejoiced to contribute to the work of the ministry. You know, that we're, we're, I'll mention again, we're approaching December. We're going to take the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It's a great opportunity to contribute to the evangelization of all the nations. I'll mention again, too, that, that I think our renovation of that downstairs wing over there should be seen by us as, as part of the work of the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. And, and I think we're, I mean, I know what we've received electronically. I'm not sure what we've received in other forms, but I think we're at about probably around twenty eight dollars to $30,000 that have come in of the 50000 that we're trying to uh, raise. So if you haven't contributed to that, I would encourage you to think about the way these Ancient Christians expanded out of a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty and uh, consider how you might rejoice at the, at the opportunity to, to, to participate in, in this. And then there's instruction for us too on how to pray, isn't there? Um, to strive in prayer for what's going on here, the way it'll be... Um, Opposed by unbelievers, prayers that it might be uh, acceptable to other believers, and so that we can have joy in the work of the ministry. And then that final prayer that Paul prays there in verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Uh, you know, for God to be with us, this is what the Lord promised. This is what Joseph experienced in his affliction. God was with Joseph. We read that repeatedly. This is what God promised to the Israelites at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Moses 
uh, assured Israel the Lord would be with them. He would never leave them or forsake them. This is what the prophet Zechariah presented the Lord saying. The Lord said through Zechariah in, uh, in the days when they were rebuilding the temple, Zechariah 2.5, the Lord says, I will be to her, to Jerusalem, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The Lord is promising to be with his people. And these are the last words that Jesus said as he ascended into heaven. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the presence of God with us, the God of peace being with us, that'll sustain us in all these opportunities and responsibilities. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to illustrate um, with some apologies for doing this two weeks in a row, referring to Bill Belichick two weeks in a row. <laughs> but I wanna illustrate the, the wonder, really, of, of, of generosity and of kindness and of, of expressions of love. And I'm not suggesting that Bill Belichick is a saint, I think he's probably a pagan. Um, but listen to this. Before his Super Bowl 39 victory over Philadelphia in Jacksonville in February 2005, Belichick received a note from his lacrosse coach at Wesleyan, Terry Jackson, whose wife was undergoing chemotherapy for ovarian cancer. Karen Jackson used to cook meals for Belichick and the other Wesleyan players. And in turn, Bill and his friend and teammate Mark Friedland, would babysit for her. Jackson wrote that his wife's bucket list included trips to the Kentucky Derby and the Super Bowl, and that he was wondering if Belichick could scratch one of those items off the list. The tickets have already been purchased, the coach wrote back. We'll see you after the game. Jackson and Karen cherished their time at the Super Bowl. She died months later. Over the years, Jackson deeply appreciated the many notes Belichick kept sending him from Foxborough, thanking his Wesleyan mentor for his kindness and for teaching him the meaning of teamwork. Quote, I know I wouldn't be in this position without your help and the great example you set for me and all the other players you co coached. Belichick wrote to him years later, thanks for providing such a great role model for all of us when we needed it most. We, we, we are part of the greatest cause in the world. And we have the opportunity to contribute to this cause, to participate in this cause. So let's be about the work of the ministry. Let's strive together in prayer. Let's, let's proclaim the gospel where Christ has not been named. Let's joyfully contribute to the work of the ministry. And as our plans are thwarted, Let's rejoice and trust that the Lord is going to accomplish his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we thank you for the way that your word is proven true in so many different ways. Lord, I think of our sister Dolores. I think of the way that the process of dying is taking away from her body everything that makes life possible. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom that comes from 
going to the place of mourning. I pray that you would help us to reflect on how short our lives are and how so much of what we give our time to is just vapor and nothingness. And Lord, I pray that you would renew in us a zeal to be about your work. I pray that you would help us to redouble our efforts to to look for opportunities to turn conversations to the gospel, to look for ways that we can love and serve others, to look for ways that we can contribute to the needs of the work. And Lord, make make us more diligent to strive with your people in prayer. We ask, Lord, that you would prosper our efforts to proclaim the gospel. We pray that you'd give us favor in the, in the eyes of unbelievers here in our culture. We pray that you'd deliver us from their opposition to your work. We pray this also for our brothers and sisters in lands that don't tolerate the gospel. Lord, we pray that, that no government no system would be able to stop the spread of the gospel. And we pray that you would cause your people to pass as though unseen into those places to spread the love of Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would comfort us with the knowledge that you, the God of peace, will be with us. In Christ's name, amen.